Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is the book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features P.S. Duffy at her March 11th event at Marion Park Library in St. Paul. Duffy's highly praised fiction debut, The Cartographer of No Man's Land, has been called an outstanding first novel by Library Journal and was a Barnes & Noble Discover New Writers pick for 2013. Set in France and Nova Scotia during the First World War, Duffy's alternating portrayal of a son coming of age at home while his father faces battle overseas is a soulful addition to the canon of World War I literature. With a long career in neuroscience, Duffy is the author of numerous scientific publications and now balances her work as a science writer for the Mayo Clinic with her talent for creative writing. Thank you very much. Thank you for that kind introduction. And um, thank you to the Friends of the St. Paul Library for including me in Club Book. And um, among so many renowned authors, I'm honored and happy to be here. Um, I'm very much a supporter of libraries. I like giving talks at libraries. I like being in libraries. Um, I'm a longtime member of the Friends of the Rochester Public Library. Rochester is a town about 90 miles south of here, for those of you who don't know where Rochester, Minnesota is. Although this is my third book, it is my first novel. And um, so I'm referred to as a debut novelist and the work as a piece of debut fiction. And I've said before, I'm happy at my age to have the word debut attached to anything I do. Um, And one review said, P.S. Duffy spent 65 years writing this book. Well, no, not 65 years. But I do think they were emphasizing the notion that you bring a lifetime of experience to the work. And um, so I think there age is an advantage and it's nice to have age uh, make a difference for those of us who are of a certain age. Uh, I don't think I felt more alive in my life than when I was writing this book. It took a number of years. It fed my heart and fed my soul. It was hard to let it go out into the world. Um, And that's not to say there weren't tough times as I wrote it. There certainly were and I was supported by friends and family. Um, And to them, I am most grateful. Writing a novel is one thing, and then the post-publication process is quite another. And so this far into it, um, the book came out at the beginning of November. Um, I know many of the questions that I get asked in interviews and and, uh, giving presentations, and those are these. Um, What is your book about? Why did you write it? 
how's it doing? Which is a question that's very different from how's the book going? Which was what I was used to being asked for a number of years. Um, how did you go from science into fiction? Why did you write about the First World War? Why are your protagonists men and how did you come to write from the male point of view? And how thrilled are you that your book won the Pulitzer? Oh wait, <laughs> the judging hasn't even taken place. <laughs> so none of these questions has easy answers, but what I'm going to try to do is answer some of those questions, um, do a couple of readings, two short readings, and then have plenty of time for your questions. So um, first of all, what's the book about? This is, a, this is a question that you know you're asked all the time, and um, it's not easy, I think, actually, for an author to talk about what's the book about. So I'm going to give you the, you know, the sort of basic plot, basic journey, um, and then talk a little bit more about it. Um, as she said, the story takes place during the First World War, both on the Western Front and uh, in alternating chapters on the home front. And it takes place in the home front and fictional village of Snag Harbor, which is in the very real Mahone Bay, Nova Scotia, a place that is very dear to my heart and uh, very beautiful. The uh, story is seen through the eyes of Angus McGrath, uh, who is working as, for his father as a coastal trader in 1917 when the book opens, and also through the eyes of his 13-year-old son, Simon Peter. Angus is a failed artist, or at least failed in his own mind, but he is an excellent illustrator. And when his best friend and brother-in-law, Eben Hant, goes missing uh, after the Battle of the Somme, in particular the Battle of Corselet, Angus decides to join up to find him. Um, in large measure, measure, this is he's motivated um, to help his rather distraught and emotionally distant wife. Um, but underlying that, and I think he knows this at some level, he is searching for a meaning and purpose in his own life. He is searching for an escape from a fairly domineering father who is a wealthy man by Snag Harbor standards, the owner of ships and the timber to build him, as I say in the book. Angus both loves and hates this man, and he is a man who is fervently against the war, in fact, against all wars, and has raised Angus that way. Now, Angus is a great sailor, great navigator, a natural leader, and the skipper of his boat, but on shore, he's a bit lost. When he joins up, he's told he will be a cartographer in London. And um, when he gets there, there are plenty of cartographers for the war, and he is immediately shipped to the infantry. And from there, he is shipped to the front lines at the battle for Vimy Ridge. And Vimy Ridge, uh, which Anybody here ever hear of it? That is a, as iconic a battle to Canadians as Gettysburg or Valley Forge or any of those uh, iconic moments in our own history. It put Canada on the map. Um, Canada was a young country then, had just been confederated in 1867. And uh, so some 50 years later, they uh, fought as their own army under British leadership. Most of the troops from the rest of the empire, Britain's empire, were bled in to um, the British forces. But all of the Canadian battalions were together and uh, faced this ridge for which 150,000 lives had already been lost trying to take it. 
So that's where he ends up as a first lieutenant. Um, for him, really the journey to find his brother-in-law and his best friend is really a journey to find himself. Simon Peter back home, his only child and probably the one true thing in Angus's life is a plucky, imaginative, and innocent boy. And much of the story, the alternating chapters that take place in Snag Harbor have to do with sailing and um, boating and fishing. This is a fishing village. But coming of age, Simon too is tested as he navigates the uncertain ground of war on the home front. Now, not mentioned in this summary are a cast of characters uh, in Snag Harbor on the Western Front, uh, each confronting the upheaval of war. So I'm sure you can see the movie trailer script now. Cast of thousands emblazoned across the scene. Will Angus find his brother-in-law, Eben? Will he make it out alive? Will Simon Peter be able to pre protect those who need, need it most? So that's the surface story. There's a line in the book, we cannot know the whole poem from a single word, nor life from a single act. And so true with literary fiction. This is a book about fathers and sons, about boys becoming men. Angus commits to war. The reluctant soldier commits to war, not because he's violent, but because he is not violent. Because like so many soldiers, he focuses down on his men, on the thin thread of life, and on the particulars of the here and now. One reader put this understory this way. Map, compass, north star, lifeline, a sense of direction. These guides recur throughout the book, a book that uses the metaphors of maritime navigation to speak a deeper interior journey, a navigation of the inner life the delicate balance of truth and lies, the swells and troughs of human emotion, the many sides of human nature, its kindness and its cruelty. It is a book about love, duty, honor, bigotry, manhood. But it is also about holding steady in the face of natural disasters and human error, keeping faith in the face of the unknown, holding on to one's integrity, sanity, and moral compass in the midst of war, loss, and disappointment. And I thought that was just beautifully and eloquently stated. I don't know whose book it was about, but no, it was about mine. So then the next question I often get asked is, how is the book doing? Um, and that means marketing. And uh, that's an unlikely enterprise for someone from my background. There's Facebook, websites, Twitter. Yikes, um, foreign territory for me. Um, but I figured if Na Angus could navigate no man's land, then I could surely learn how to put together a Facebook page. But how wrong I was. <laughs> 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 so I had my daughter help me. Um, and uh, after waiting for me to do it, a publisher, the publisher put together a beautiful uh, website for me, too. And um, I now. Uh, know how to keep that up to date, and um, I've been very fortunate, very fortunate in my publisher, W.W. Norton. They could not have been more supportive, nor had more faith in this book, nor been more helpful to me. Um, so when I'm not obsessively checking my uh, Amazon stats, <laughs> I, <laughs> I update that Facebook page. Um, and, and the reason why this is, it, it, it is a kind of a funny thing, is that 
in the academic press. It, I have a textbook, a graduate textbook on called Right Hemisphere Disorders, uh, Right Hemisphere Damage Disorders of Communication and Cognition. And you know, if you give a talk somewhere, you're teaching. And if they happen to have your book, and people have paid to come hear you, whatever you have to say, if your book is in the hallway on a table, you don't stand anywhere near it. Um, you are divorced from, because you're not there to promote your book or your test or whatever it is. It's, in fact, for many, um, many programs, you have to sign all kinds of disclosures that you are, you are not conflating the information you are teaching with self-promotion or trying to make money off it. So it is a very different world. But, of course, you have an obligation to promote your work in fiction um, to the agent, to the publishing house, and to the story. And, um, and why is that? Because if you don't promote it, there are thousands and millions of books out there, and you will not have readers. And if you do not have readers, your story dies. And so that is the, and, and, and it is the reader that keeps the story alive, absolutely keeps it alive. You know, this world was in my head, and it was living for me. These are real people for me. When it goes out into the world, it has gone from my imagination to the page into your imagination, and there it is transformed. And the reader brings their own experience, your own sensibilities, your own take on things. So I can say Angus was tall, and you can fill in that he's dark and handsome. Um, I can give you these brush strokes that for me call up many things, and for you may call up other things. So in reimagining the story, it becomes a new story, and it becomes your story, and it is transformed, and it is alive. And so I am happy to <clears throat> be able to have an opportunity to talk about the book and hear from readers. It is, um, it is the magic, um, and, uh, and it was good to have it go out into the world and find that out. We really don't know where stories come from. But what we do know is this is how stories are fed and cared for and stay alive. And it is interesting how different people have different takes. Um, one said, I get um, messages through the website in other ways. One man said, this book changed how I look at the world and how I look at myself. Uh, another young woman came up to me. She was in her early 20s. And a friend of hers had uh, a young friend had uh, suddenly died. And she said she went, she had tears in her eyes, and she said she went right to cartographer. She quoted me the page, the section of text, and told me that it gave her comfort. So of course there were tears in my eyes as well. Another reader wrote to say that her favorite character was Peg. Well, Peg is a horse. <laughs> and this is not Black Beauty. So I was surprised, but she said the reason she liked Peg was the horse, um, Simon Peter's horse, was that Peg understood George. And George is a wounded veteran who has a lot of trouble communicating. And she's right. Peg empathized with George. And I like Peg, too. So she was absolutely right. And that's who she related to. So with that, let me read the opening of the book. This is the prologue. And 
It's the first of two readings I'll do. Um, the prologue is written in a little bit of a different narrative voice than the um, rest of the book, the prologue. The boy had been laughing under the clouds on a flat gray sea as his father sang an old and funny song about all the fishes climbing upon the seaweed trees. But then the sun broke through in a banded stream that coursed across the water to their boat. His father stopped singing and stopped rowing and looked about. And the boy stopped swinging his legs beneath his seat and looked about as well. His hair ruffled in the breeze. All around them, the sun revealed water dancing in a way not so firmly lashed to the here and now. It mesmerized the senses, suffusing everything in its catchy-caught ripples upon the open water so that there was nothing but the dance. His father drew in the heavy oars, and the sound of their smooth, worn wood slipped into the boat. The light was golden against the floorboards. The spangled sea was so bright they could not tear their eyes from it, rippling, flickering, drawing them in. His father drew the boy toward him without taking his eyes off the silver sea. The boy turned between his father's long legs and rested a small hand on his father's knee. His father circled him with his arm and felt the heart, boy's heart beat into his hand. In all this world, there is only the gently rocking boat, the dancing water, all time, past, present, and future, gathered and expanded and released. There were no boundaries and there was no fear of being without them. The boy wanted to reach out to catch the water's dance, but more than that, he wanted to remain forever, leaning lightly against the rough wool of his father's shirt, with his father's hand resting against his chest. They stayed like that, the boy and his father, until a wide breeze blew over the boat, and his father said quietly, we have witnessed God's beauty, had an encounter with the divine. Or maybe that's only what he thought. What he may have said was nothing at all, as the breeze freshened and a deep blue returned to the water, and the waves grew rougher and stopped shimmering. He took up the oars and shoved them through the wooden pens. The boy hopped back upon his seat. His father pulled in long, smooth strokes and sang once again of all the fishes in the sea climbing upon the seaweed trees. Some um, reviews have said that that's a very deliberate calm before the storm, because after all, the book takes place during World War I, kind of an idol before the war. But the fact is, I wrote that before I knew the book would take place during the war. It's one of those unconscious acts that happened. It just came to me it, uh, in full. I didn't revise, and I love revision. I like revision a little too much sometimes. But I did not change a word of this. Um, and I can't tell you how many people, when they reach the end of the book, say the first thing they did when they finished the book was go back to that prologue. And for myself, I think much of the book is in that prologue. So the book does take place during the war. And I guess the question is, why did I write about the war? Uh, I didn't choose to write about the war. I really would have to say the war chose me. I really was trying to avoid the war. <laughs> And I was going to set the book after the war in Mahone Bay and having to do with schooner fishing on the Grand Banks, not too long in the past, but around 1918. And I was going to have it be about a relationship between a father and a son and a broken relationship and what it took to heal that and so on. That was my, my sort of beginning. 
but and I wrote 250 pages of a really bad novel. Um, and then I realized the reason this is so bad is you have to go through what the father went through. And so you're going to have to go into the war. Um, and so I did. And I began my research. I have an um, undergraduate degree in history. I knew how to do it. And I faced up to it. And so I'm going to give you a couple of facts and the kind of thing I was confronted with on a sunny July 1st. 1916, at the opening day of the Battle of the Somme, 120,000 British soldiers rose up out of their trenches with 40-pound backs, uh, packs on their backs and ran sort of in a crouched position in a massed frontal assault across no man's land towards the German trenches. It was the opening of the Battle of the Somme. By day's end, 57,000 of them lay on the field. Casualties. 21,000 of them dead, the rest wounded or missing. 57,000 is the number of dead we have from 10 years in Vietnam. This was one day, and most of it happened in about the first couple of hours. The 1st Newfoundland Regiment sent in 752 men. By day's end, there were 684 dead wounded or missing, including every single one of their officers. The German troops they attacked did not suffer a single casualty. The Battle of the Somme lasted four and a half months. Um, the massive Tiepfall Memorial is inscribed with the names of the missing. From that four and a half month battle, 72,191 missing. So I was confronted by this kind of incomprehensible fact, a landscape that was unchartable, and I needed a compass, and guess what? My characters showed up. And in their small acts of humanity was my saving grace. So the book began to take place during the war, and um, the story began to reveal itself. And as I'm a writer, I'm sure, as a writer, you, the boundaries between your characters and yourself are permeable and thin. I, I, I have to say, relative to the First World War, a lot of people say, in fact, I had a woman call me last week, um, uh, an elderly woman who I knew, and she said, look, I'm really angry. I'm sorry, but I am so angry. Why didn't we learn more about this in school? And my response to her is pretty much the response I've given elsewhere, which is as horrendous as this war was, we were in it for a much shorter time. Our losses, though, proportionally were significant. I think it was 110,000, something like that. The conditions were the same. Um, but it was not a war that defined us as a nation not like the revolution, which is about freedom, the civil war, which is about who we are as a country, about union, about slavery, the second world war, which very much defined us as a nation in the world. Not only were we attacked, um, but also um, we helped to save uh, Europe and Britain. And after the war, uh, those of, who are my age know very well that we helped rebuild Europe uh, through the Marshall Plan. So it, it gave us a sense of ourselves as a generous, powerful nation in the global uh, community. But the, but 
we should know more about the First World War. This is the uh, 100th anniversary of the start of it, this August, because from it comes everything, everything thereafter. It absolutely is the turning point, certainly for Europe and probably for the world. It ushers in cynicism, sarcasm, which hadn't been uh, very much evident in the Edwardian Victorian era. Um, it engendered mistrust in institutions and um, government. It brings on suffrage, revolution. It certainly, I think, can be blamed for the rise of the Nazi party when you look at the nature of the peace and what Germany suffered um, afterwards. In fact, the last reparation that Germany made to, the, uh, to Great Britain was just a few years ago, the last payment. The book is not about the First World War. It's not a combat novel, though it does involve combat. Um, it, said, it has been said that I'm unique among women who have written about, written fiction about World War I because I actually set the story in the trenches, not on the home front with soldiers recovering or, or dealing with it. Um, and one writer said the, the reason, or a reviewer said the reason I could do that is because I have a science background. I must have the technical mastery to um, master things like troop movements and artillery and so on. Well, no. Um, <laughs> no. But that does bring me to what, to what does science have to do with fiction and so on. Um, why did I turn to fiction? And actually, I didn't turn to fiction. I've been a storyteller all my life. My family were, I come from a great family of animated storytellers. If you had a bad day at school, it was good if you turned it into a funny story because everyone wanted to go to bed laughing and act out the parts. Um, you were expected to write poetry for every celebration. I mean, writing was part and parcel of my upbringing. My father was a scholar and a Episcopal minister, and um, he was a great storyteller too, and um, good poet. So, but I stand here before you at the St. Paul Library because of that science background, because I came up to Minnesota in 1987, so long ago, uh, to get my doctorate, having had already uh, um, a career in speech and hearing science or speech pathology and audiology. And my doctorate was in communication disorders. And I see one of my fellow students who I haven't seen for a while. And the reason I got into this field, which really is about how does the brain turn thought, and how does, how does the brain produce thought, I should say, and language from the firing of neurons. I got into it because I was working at a hospital at a very low paying job while I was waiting to get into law school. I did get into law school, but I chose not to go. And here's why, because my job was to identify all the John and Jane Doe's who came in through the emergency room. This is a big George Washington University Hospital, a big city emergency room, the one to which Reagan was taken when he was shot. And so we had a lot of people coming in with neurologic impairments or head wounds or who had been mugged, and we didn't know who they were. And my job, pre-computers, was to go through their pockets and call whoever I found and try to identify them. And when I went to talk with them, what I found was not only could they not say their name, but they had trouble speaking and communicating. They had trouble telling their story. And I was pretty good, I found, at piecing together their story, not only from what was in their pockets, but from this fragmented speech. I became their storyteller. And 
so what I wanted to do was not just be their storyteller, but help them tell their stories again. And that is why I went diverted away from law school and into communication disorders. Um, I was in that field for 27 years, um, conducting research, working clinically, and so on. And um, then I retired, and uh, I wrote the Department of Neurology at Mayo, where I was working. Mayo is a clinic down, down the road here in Rochester. And um, I worked there and wrote for the Department of Neurology. Um, and then I, uh, seven years later, was asked to be a writer, a member of the Neural Engineering Lab at Mayo. And um, I write and edit professional papers and grants. And the lab is investigating something called deep brain stimulation. Some of you may have heard of that. And that is where you put an electrode implant, an electrode in the brain, to help uh, sort of ameliorate the symptoms of progressive neurologic disease like Parkinson's, um, other disorders like epilepsy, and even some psychiatric conditions. And we know how it works. Uh, excuse me, we know that it does work, but we don't know why or how. And so, like other scientific labs, the lab's work is on the edge of our knowing. And as readers of this book know, I am drawn to mystery, to the unknown, to the ambiguous. Science and fiction both take us out of ourselves and uh, instill in us a sense of wonder. And I think that sense of wonder is part of our humanity. So the, the bridge is not so far. It's not so long between the two. Both take precision of language. The language of fiction is more evocative. And you hope to, as I said before, stimulate the imagination of the reader. The language of science, no less precise, but a more immediate one-to-one -one correspondence. So what does fiction do? It nurtures the imagination like science. And like love, it instills em empathy. I could write about a man searching to find himself on the Western Front, and a boy at home, lost, alone sometimes, trying to sort many things out, not because of the technical detail that I might have brought to it from science, but rather because I could make that leap of imagination and empathy. And it's the leap, I hope you make when you read the book. So I'm going to read one last passage. Angus now, the main character, is heading up to the front for the first time, and he is alone with a sergeant. Um, so they're going through you know, the, the back uh, earlier communication trenches to get to that frontline trench. Chapter 3, February 3rd, 1917. Arras Sector, France. Angus slept. He'd been having a hard time keeping his footing. An odorous fog lying low to the ground in wisps and patches made it difficult to see the sergeant crouching just a few feet ahead, constantly leading him on as if sure of where he was going, then gesturing with a straight arm to stay down, stay down. The shallow communication trench had fallen in or been blown away, and they were on open ground. No sign of the 17th. His breath grew short. He kept trying to remember the sergeant's name. Shell holes to the right and left, pools of stinking water, sulfurous yellow, phosphorus green, leaching up unexploded shells, empty gas canisters, rusted shrapnel, bits of bodies. 
Under the chalky mud lay stick bones, blackened flesh, no doubt clinging. The moon slid out of the clouds for a moment, revealing an undulating, featureless landscape cut through by massive belts of barbed wire. The two of them, he and the sergeant, were eerily alone. Where was all the nighttime activity, supplies coming up, working parties, troop replacements, trench repair? Not a star in the sky, but they were angling north instead of east towards the front line. Angus was sure of it. They were lost. Angus was much taller than the sergeant, so it was no easy task crouching along behind him. Angus slipped again, and his leg was sucked into what felt quicker than quicksand. The sergeant sensed he'd stopped moving. Lieutenant, he whispered as he turned around. The sergeant on all fours crawled back to Angus and set the pack down. Angus leaned back, and the sergeant heaved his leg straight up like a log. Mercifully, the boot still on, still attached, slimed with muck, but still on tight. Mercifully, too, the sergeant didn't whisper, don't worry, sir, you're not the first to fall off a trench mat. It simply pulled and smiled. Kind eyes in an angular face. He looked much older than Angus. What was his name? What was his name? They knelt face to face for a moment as if in prayer. Angus whispered his thanks. Not at all. No worries, the sergeant whispered back. And then, slapping his thighs as if to say, there then, that's done, and off we go again. He unaccountably stood up and turned around, and on the crack of gunshot fell back, knocking Angus flat and the wind right out of him. Sergeant! Angus hissed. Angus lay there, sucking air, then cautiously lifted his head. Do not fall off this duckboard, he told himself. He slowly eased back. The sergeant lay between his legs, staring upwards. Sergeant! The sergeant's head was angled back. How strange his face looked upside down, the cheekbones and chin sharper than before, the lips thinner, the eyes oddly asymmetric, open to the sky. Angus brushed his finger over a dark smudge on the forehead, but the smudge was a hole and the sergeant wasn't blinking. A warm trickle filled Angus's other hand from the back of the sergeant's head, filled it to overflowing. Angus ducked back down. A star shell lit the sky with a cascading trail of sparks, and everything took on its silver-white illumination. Heart in his throat, he dared to lift his head. A few feet beyond, he dared to lift his head. The duckboard ended a few feet beyond. Then a break, and some 20 yards out, great belts of barbed wire, and then, but the flare died out. He needed to get to that break. Trembling, he stretched over the sergeant, whose body answered with movement of its own. Angus imagined the two of them rolling off the side, sinking in, never heard from again. The duckboard listed to the left, just as Angus reached an arm beyond the sergeant's boots. He elbowed his way to the end, rolling over the edge and into a ditch on top of a pile of sandbags. The forward trench. No sentries, no sign of life. Abandoned long ago from the look of it. Keeping his head low, he lunged for the sergeant's boots as the torso slipped into a water-filled hole. There the sergeant lay, half in and half out. And there lay Angus, stretched out of the trench, holding the man's boots with both hands. The boots rattled against the boards. He gripped them tighter, but they kept at it. It was his own hands shaking. All he could think of was helping the sergeant and the two of them somehow finding the 17th. A sudden crack and a winging zip, and Angus was at the bottom of the trench, bent double, chest, neck, stomach, limbs clenched, 
The sandbags at the parapet were missing, blown in, blown away. No wonder the sniper had such a clear shot. Angus started crawling down the ditch, catching his knees on his great coat, catching his knees on his kilt, crawling over what? Bodies? No, sandbags. Ripped open some of them, his hands sinking into their oozing contents. Some ten yards along, the filled-in trench angled down. Protected by an intact parapet and a timbered trench wall, he sat back and hung his head and stared at his hands. Blood on the battlefields of France and Flanders shares kinship with the precious blood of our Lord, whose sacrifice was made for us. Dean Rennick's hard, high-flung words circled back from the pulpit to the bottom of the trench, where Angus was beginning to understand something of blood sacrifice. Sacrifice lifts us to our true humanity, our true calling. Through it comes salvation, Rennick had said. Died in the bottom of a trench, no more senseless way to die, came his father's words about Eben. Angus stared at the timbers in front of him, one atop another. In the hazy moonlight, the grain of the wood stood out in sharp relief. Oak, Angus thought. Against the noxious air, he conjured up creosote on the town wharf and fragrant wood shavings curling under a boat in Mater's shed and the tangle of oars, trap buoys, nets, and linnet. And there was Simon Peter, clear as day, smiling at the shed door, sun framing his blonde head, sunlight sparking the harbor beyond. Angus opened his eyes, and the grain of the timbers became narrow slots through which he might slip unnoticed and never look back. When the trembling stopped, he risked his silhouette against the next German flare. Two boots on the rim of the shell hole were slowly sinking in, and with them, the sergeant disappeared. Wickham, Angus whispered into the night. John Wickham. Well, we didn't need a cartographer to get us here. We have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for P.S. Duffy and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and to help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the evening is about Duffy's research process and how she is able to write such gruesome war scenes in her book. How does someone go about researching something like that? You know, I think when you read, you know, the kind of research you do um, isn't just history books. You know, you're reading memoir, you're reading diaries. I read some unpublished diaries, you know, that letters are not really going to help you because they, they kind of whitewash everything. But I think you get into the world, you get into, you know, you make that leap. I'm not sure I could do it with other eras necessarily, but certainly here, you make that imaginative leap. You kind of know that language, you know that, you know, and almost always when I start a chapter, I always say to my husband, I'm just waiting for that door to open. And when I finally get just an image, it's like, boom, I know where I'm going. I don't say, well, this chapter has to cover this, this, and this. You know, I, I knew where the end of this book was going, but I didn't have the, the plot all laid out. But in a, in a scene like this, what I do know is that, at, especially from reading a um, memoir by William, Will R. Byrd, who uh, wrote a book called Soldiers Have Warm Hands, and it was his war diary. He is a Canadian from Nova Scotia, later became a journalist. But this book taught me, it's almost stream of consciousness, but it taught me 
whatever you think might happen at the front could happen. It, it, it was a, it was in many ways chaotic. You know, a war battalion diary gives you, we were here, we were there, this happened, that happened, very dry. Sounds like every battle is a set piece, and it certainly is not. So, and I think you just enter into that. And the other big thing is, you're, you're, you're that character, you know, and you're seeing what he's seeing. I, I knew there were duck boards. I understand communication wrenches. I understand, you know, these sulfurous pools of water, these, these shell holes that fill. This was a, a place of incredible rains and mud, very flat, chalky land. I got all that. I have it in my head. It's, it's there in full, and I see it. And then I just see what happens. Our next audience member comments on how these instances of war are so intense. It is no wonder how soldiers returning home from war cannot speak of their experiences. How did these men bring their experience of war into the context of the home front? And this war particularly took people by surprise. I'm sure many of you have seen Downton Abbey and know that, you know, we have this kind of classically Edwardian summer and then boom, we have outdated tactics faced with machine guns and modern weaponry. And that, that is a major problem. You know, they started out the war with cavalry. Swords, horses, you know, machine guns. Just think about it. And, and tremendous artillery. I mean, you know, when, before that battle and the Battle of Vimy Ridge, you know, there are just these massive pieces of artillery a few yards apart. Just, I think they detonated a million um, shells on Vimy Ridge, which didn't do much to the, the deep German bunkers there. And, and there was barbed wire, and to get through the barbed wire, you know, you had to cut things and cut your way through. Finally, they got shells that could, could break that wire apart. But in any case, um, yeah, nobody was prepared for that, and so how do you come back? And a lot of the, what this book does explore is, is, is that very question, and that is why people are silent, because they, there are no words for it that the people at home are going to understand. And as Angus said, I don't talk about my family, he says to a doctor who's asking him. He says, why? He says, you know, I, I don't want them to be unclean. You know, what he's seen, what he's experienced, he doesn't want to make that world blend. Another audience member comments here about how there was such a sense of glory with the First World War and asks, how did that notion, mixed with the silence of those who returned, have an effect on the image of the war and the men about to join. So that silence um, sort of perpetuates the notion in young people, the next generation, that they, they will go off with valor. And, and, and for many of the people joining up here, um, the, they, were, they were overwhelmed by volunteers in Britain. You know, every town in Britain and many, many small towns in Canada, most of them have a, a First World War memorial. Um, and Many of those um, men just you know, couldn't wait to join up. And whole towns went together. There was something called the PALS unit. And they'd all be in the same platoon or battalion. And then they'd all be blown up together. And then that town would lose all of their sons and husbands and fathers. Um, and I think, <clears throat> I think the other thing, though, that's very interesting is how you commit to the war. You know, if when you're in the war, you say, well, this is just, you know, I mean, certainly there was a certain amount of cynicism about the higher-ups and the, what they call the brass hats who were calling the shots and, uh, and, and conducting the war. But among the men themselves, you know, from those 
actually doing the fighting, captains and lieutenants and, and the ranks. You don't want to think that way too much. You are too loyal to your comrades and to keeping them alive. That's your goal. You know, you're not thinking about, gee, does this whole war make sense? I mean, no war makes sense, and everybody in it knows that, you know, as they fight. But that's why I think you see redeployment and, you know, and we can even think of the war poets in Britain who were very much against the war and then, and, and vocal about it, Sassoon, Owen, and they go back. Why do they go back? Loyalty to their men. You know, see it to the end. And they're against the war. Our next question is about Winston Churchill and the way in which he spoke so highly of his war experience prior to World War I. One reader wants to know if this also plays a role in the misconstrued image of the war. I don't know, you know, it's interesting that you bring up Churchill's war experience. MacArthur was in the war. General Montgomery was in the First World War. Um, Walt Disney, I always say. Ray Kroc, I doubt we would have Disneyland if there hadn't been for his experience in this um, chaotic, dirty, unregulated uh, trench war life. Uh, Ray Kroc is the person who founded a McDonald's, uh, who bought it from the McDonald's brother and brothers and, and made it the way it is. And both of them knew each other. On the Western Front, they had uh, run away as 16-year-olds um, and were in an ambulance drivers and uh, saw, all, you know, saw hell. And what they wanted was to um, create worlds in which there was n none of that, regulated, standardized, proceeding without even a sign of trash, you know, everything controlled. And uh, I think it's very interesting that they came out of that experience and that many of our generals, Eisenhower was on the home front, but he was in the Army, um, Omar Bradley, you know, all these guys had already been. And I think the, the very amazing thing is, to give you an idea of the impact of this, just say in the UK, a million school children are going over to the World War I memorials uh, this year. They will be sent by Britain, a million. And, you know, for Britain, um, it, I think it's very much the defining war. You can understand, with the losses they suffered, why it is that there was such reluctance, not hardly a generation later, to enter into war again. You know, so we always say, oh, Chamberlain, you know, comes back, peace in our time with Hitler, you know, makes the compromises. Well, they hardly had anything left to fight with. It is amazing that they were able to pick themselves up with these kinds of losses. Seven million soldiers dead in this war. You know, and you think about a place like Newfoundland, you know, send in those 700 and some lost so many, they didn't have anyone left to send. That's it. This question asker inquires if Duffy is working on any new works of fiction. I am. You know, it's, a it's been a little hard to, um, to find that sort of, I think there needs to be a downtime, I guess, after you write a book. I have um, some ideas. I, you know, have written a few things. I would like, some people have asked me about a sequel because they, and a lot, a, a number of people have asked me more about Hetty Ellen, the wife, Angus's wife, and I do know a lot about her, and I wrote a lot about her that I left on the cutting room floor myself because 
you know, it's going to take me down a garden path that really wasn't what this book was about. And um, so, you know, I've thought about her, but I think um, we just, I just kind of have to let that quiet time happen and see if that is where it takes me or in another direction. But I think writing, yeah, it's definitely part of my life. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Duffy's novel revealed anything about herself as she put it on paper. Yeah, I, I think so. Not telling what those are, but no. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think, that, I think that the act of writing for any of us, I mean, I'm sure there are writers of, among you and people who aren't writing for publication, but just write. I think that's what writing does when, when it's personal. And I think, yeah, the stories that you write tell you something about your own inner landscape. And they resonate for reasons. You go in directions for reasons. I came up here with a friend of mine sitting right there, Barbara Tillman, who edited this book several times before I even sent it out. And she, she is in the acknowledgments as the incomparable Barbara Tillman. And um, she doesn't uh, rewrite anything, but she is very good at pointing out you know, where you, know, you may be taken out of the story or, or things that don't quite, didn't quite work or whatever. And um, she often, she told me, wow, you know, there are certain spiritual, not, you know, uh, um, um, moments here. And, or there are certain symbolic things. And I'd go, symbols? Symbolism, really? And she'd say, yeah, you know, and X, Y, and Z. And I'd go, oh, yeah, <laughs> you're right. And, but I hadn't really realized it. It's unconscious. I thank you very much. Well, that's it from our Marion Park Library event with P.S. Duffy. Catch our next club book with Nikki Giovanni and Dave Zyron at Southdale Library in Hennepin County on Wednesday, March 19, 2014 at 7 p.m. Meet Nikki Giovanni and Dave Zyron, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season on our Clubbook Facebook page. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, Around Town Agency, the Crown Plaza, Hotel, St. Paul Riverfront, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to the St. Paul Public Library for hosting P.S. Duffy and to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.